So before there was Crime Countdown, you may know, there was our podcast, Morbid. In May 2018, we posted our first episode for that show, about the Golden State Killer, right here on Spotify. And since then, we've covered more crimes than we can even count. But there are definitely some we will never forget. Today, we have a little crossover episode that not only bridges our two shows, but lets us revisit the most haunting crimes we have ever talked about on Morbid. Hey, all you weirdos, welcome to Crime Countdown, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Ash. And I'm Elena. Every week we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes, all picked by the Parcast Research Gods. This episode, we are counting down the top 10 most haunting morbid episodes. We started Morbid way back in 2018. Um, I think we were literally sitting on your couch. Yes, we were. Talking about like podcasts that we liked and then probably watching some kind of true crime documentary. Likely. And we were like, hey, why don't we do one of these? (laughs) Why aren't we doing this already? (laughs) Let's do a podcast. Yeah. And it just it just organically kind of happened. Yeah. Which was great. And it's actually crazy that it's been that long and that we've covered so many things since then. But these ones we're going to talk about today are definitely the most haunting cases in my opinion me too uh the ones that just like stuck with us for weeks and sometimes years after we hit the record button because the things that happen to the people involved in the cases that we're going to talk about they're just unimaginable and just gut-wrenching like i think they're honestly going to be imprinted into our brains for probably until the end of time oh yeah it's the worst of the worst for sure just a fair warning uh and we gave the parkhouse research gods the day off for this one yeah like i feel like they could use it and i hope they're sitting on a beach like drinking some fruity drinks oh yeah you know? getting like like um fanned yeah by a big leaf. absolutely yeah i could see why they would want to sit this one out yes especially when we get to number one because it is a case that actually took us four parts to deliver and it was one of the hardest installments of morbid to get through Elena has five similar cases, and so do I, but we actually work together on this list. (laughs) For the first time, we know the other side of the list. We do. It's exciting. Let's start the countdown. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 10. I'll start us off with number 10, the mysterious murder of Julia Wallace. We covered this case in three episodes on Morbid back in April 2021. It's the unsolved murder of Julia Wallace in 1931 that has baffled detectives and crime writers who are at the top of their game. It's been compared to the Jack the Ripper murders in terms of the amount of both fiction and nonfiction that's been written about or based on the case. 
This is a crazy one. This one had me knee deep in research for weeks. Yeah. I could not stop with this. I remember coming over and you would just be like flicking through some kind of book and I'd be like, whoa, still <laughs> like, working on that? Are you okay? And I was like, no, I'm not. No. So Julia's body was found by her husband, William, on January 20th, 1931. The night before, someone left a message for William at his chess club. The message had an address on it where this mysterious caller wanted to meet him. Mm -hmm. This is all strange up to this point. Like, this doesn't happen. No. William sold insurance. He's just an ins he's an insurance salesman. Knock, knock. He's Would not you like out some there insurance? doing any adventures. So getting a weird message like this, he was like, I guess, sure. He just assumed it was someone wanting to talk to him about insurance. Yeah, the huge. But when he got to where the address should be, he asked around and realized it was a fake address. So he just headed home. He was like, that was weird, but yeah. what am I going to do about it? It's 1931. When he got home, he found Julia brutally murdered in their parlor. William was arrested for her murder pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Prosecutors claimed William made the phone call to his chess club himself so that he'd have an alibi. Others believed it was a prank caller. That, the, that call is the subject of so much debate. I know. It's like, was it a prank caller and just like totally unrelated? And just happened to be at the same time that his wife was being murdered? No, for me, it's somebody who was setting him up to be out of the house so that she they could do what they needed to do. It felt that way to me. And it did happen when he was like not at the chess club yet. So that's why people were like, was that him? And then he showed right. up and was like, oh, I have a message. No, I don't think so. Well, William was initially convicted, but then had his conviction overturned by an appeals judge. That judge said the evidence didn't prove he was guilty beyond reasonable doubt. If William's conviction wouldn't have been overturned, he would have been hanged. Can you imagine if they didn't overturn it in time and then they were like, Oh, like, the evidence actually doesn't prove anything. Yeah, that's actually weird. Whoops. Sucks. Well, William died in 1933, so not that long after this. No. Believing an old assistant of his, Richard Perry, is the man who made the phone call and killed Julia. And, and honestly, he was a good suspect to me. Yeah, because that night he wanted his car cleaned, right? Yeah. The night of the murder. Oh, and yeah. there was, like, blood all over his car. Oh, yeah. Hello. Oh, yeah. There was blood inside the glove compartment. There was... There was a lot in there. Some might call that a smoking gun. Just saying. Julia's murder technically remains unsolved, but there are crime writers who believe William is in fact the killer still. I think when, when I first read this, I was like, oh, the husband did it. Because that's like, just like what you're always thinking. Obviously. But then when I looked further into it, sure, there's a lot that could point to him. I will say that. Yeah. But there's a lot that points away from him. And that Richard Perry guy? Yeah. I don't know. For me, it's Richard Perry. And he had um, a violent past as well, I believe. He did. There was a lot that made it seem like he could have been the guy. Yeah. And he had been at their home before. He knew the layout. He had spoken to Julia before. It was just all very... And I think some money was stolen. Yep. That was hidden in a specific place with his insurance papers. And he, he had been fired. Exactly. So there was a lot that he could... There was a lot of motive... He had seen that place where the money was before when he was in the house, when he worked for uh, William. So I don't know. It seemed like it was him to me. He seemed like a strong suspect. I agree. Nine. At number nine is the Sodder Children. This is a story we covered on Morbid in July of 2018, so pretty early on. The Sodder tragedy happened during Christmas in 1945, when a house fire burned the Sodder's home to the ground. George and Jenny Sodder and nine of their 10 children were in the house. Five of the kids never got out, but also no trace of their remains were ever found. This is a case that I will never let go of. It stumps me forever. So George tried to save his five children that were supposedly still in the house, but the fire blocked him from getting upstairs where he believed they were. He went outside to find another way, and this is where some strange things happened. His ladder that he kept propped against the house was missing. His two coal trucks, which he thought he could pull up to the house and climb, suddenly they wouldn't start. He tried to use the water from the rain barrel to help put the fire out, and the water was frozen. And then no one could reach the fire department. When they finally did, the firefighters had to call each other one at a time and didn't get there until eight in the morning. 
by then, the house was a pile of ash. It's such a series of insane events. Yeah, that it's just like way too perfect to be like coincidental. And like, I don't mean perfect in a good way, obviously. But also all that was weird. But then it gets weirder. Police searched the rubble and found no trace of human remains. Maybe the fire was so hot it completely burned them away. Well, the crematorium told the Sodders that after burning bodies for two hours at 2,000 degrees, there's always bones left. Yeah, we went really far into that, like what it takes to actually burn bone away, and it just didn't make sense There's no way. Yeah. This house was destroyed in 45 minutes, so obviously the fire was like blazing and super hot, but 2,000 degrees is not going to get rid of everything. And also it needs that prolonged period of time in order to get rid of the bones, and it didn't have that. It had 45 minutes. You're not going to get rid of bones that way. Boom. So the coroner's office issued death certificates for the five kids, and where the house stood then became a memorial. But then the Sodders began to wonder if their five children were still alive, and it all spiraled from there. For years, people reported sightings of the kids, the parents tried to get the FBI involved, and the local authorities said no. A private investigator also turned up some conspiracy theories that didn't help. George and Jenny put up billboards offering reward money, and various sightings and reports came in, but to no avail. After years of false leads and maybe some misguided hope, George died in 1968, and Jenny died in 1989, both believing that their kids were still alive. It's so sad, and I think they at one point had gotten a picture sent to them, and it was, they said it was one of their kids, and it really does look like an Mm -hmm. older version of one of their kids. This whole story gives me like goosebumps to the core. It's a true mystery. Eight. Number eight on our countdown of most haunting morbid episodes is the tragic case of Molly Bish. Literally just months after we talked about this case on Morbid in March 2021, investigators actually named a person of interest. As of this recording, convicted rapist Frank P. Sumner Sr. was named as Molly's potential killer. Sumner died in 2016, but no matter who's to blame, it doesn't make the case any less gut-wrenching. Molly Bish was just 16 years old and worked as a lifeguard at Commons Pond during the summer of 2000 in Warren, Massachusetts, where we live in Massachusetts. That's why this case is like so special to us. Oh, yeah. The day before she disappeared in June that year, Molly's mother noticed a suspicious man in the parking lot of Molly's work. He was sitting in a white Chrysler, smoking a cigarette with his left hand. This is the description she gave to the police, and it matched Sumner's description. It really does. It really does. She said he stood out because he just stared at her instead of saying hello like most people do in their small town. On June 27th, just before 10 a.m., Molly showed up to work and set up her lifeguard chair. By 10.03, she was gone. Her belongings were still on the chair. Mm -hmm. She got there at 10 a.m., like a little before 10 a.m., and was gone by 10.03. Yeah, it's crazy. The community set up a massive search, but it wasn't until three years later that a hunter found Molly's remains in the woods, five miles away from her work. In 2013, Molly's mother wrote a letter pleading for her killer to come forward, but it remained unsolved. Then in 2021, Frank P. Sumner Sr. was named a person of interest. Investigators said they received new information, which they verified, that pointed to Sumner, who had a long criminal record. As we mentioned, Sumner died in 2016. Yeah, this case like stayed with me for a long time. And I think especially because we got to chat with Molly's sister, Heather. Who was um, amazing. In a follow-up episode, I think it was episode 232. Yeah, I think you're right. And Heather was really like the main person who after like her parents got older and everything, like kept Molly's case alive and wanted to test new evidence and like just really kept this whole investigation going. Oh yeah, she was trying to get laws passed. She was trying to get, I mean, she was on it trying to get that evidence tested and she never for one second gave up on this case. No. She is like the sister. She's badass. She really is. We love Heather. Seven. 
At number seven this week is the gruesome murder of Brenda Sue Schaefer. There is so much drama around this case from Louisville, Kentucky, that we did it as a three-parter on Morbid in August of 2020. Brenda's murder in 1988 was so horrifying to begin with, but then the process of convicting the man thought to be responsible just added to the tragedy of this case. This case. Oof. I like lived and breathed this case for you like did. weeks. It was I remember rough. you saying at one point, you were like, I got to wrap this up because I got to get out of here. Like, I can't it's be in this anymore. brutal and devastating. In September of 1988, Brenda Schaefer went missing after being with her boyfriend, Mel Ignato. Mel told the police that Brenda left his home before midnight that night. Brenda's car was then found abandoned with a flat tire and a broken window on the shoulder of the interstate. At the time, there were conflicting opinions on what direction Brenda and Mel's relationship was heading. Mel said that their relationship was going great. Brenda reportedly was sneaking around with an ex-boyfriend, though. Mel was questioned in front of a grand jury a year after Brenda went missing. And during that testimony, he said his ex-girlfriend, Marianne Shore, was his alibi witness. Marianne was a wild witness, to say the least, and she gave contradictory testimony. I remember that. Uh, way too much. She told the jury that Brenda was killed by Mel. She claimed that Mel stripped Brenda and tied her up to a coffee table. Ooh. He then allegedly subjected her to sadistic acts, which Marianne took pictures of with a 35 millimeter camera. Ooh. Horrific. Marianne testified that Mel then killed Brenda with chloroform and buried her body in the woods. Marianne's testimony led police to Brenda's body, and on January 11, 1990, Mel Ignato was charged with murder, kidnapping, and sexual abuse. Good. Marianne was only charged with evidence tampering, which that makes me so angry. My mind. And when she showed up to testify during Mel's trial, she kept laughing about the torture that they put Brenda through. And it's like, come on, that needs to be taken into account. You can't just be like, oh, darn, she didn't do it when we wanted her to. So come on. She wanted to be with Mel. She's evil. And then the shocking news. The jury acquitted Mel, with one juror saying Marianne Shore just wanted to get even with him. Oh, my goodness. Six months later, men doing work on Marianne's former home found three undeveloped rolls of film. It was 105 photographs of Brenda's torture. But because of double jeopardy, Mel Ignato could not be retried, but he confessed and served a decade in prison for grand jury perjury. Mel Ignato died September 2008. Bye. Yeah, like, good riddance. Like, he, it was all found to be true. He confesses, and they can't do anything about it. The Yeah, that's the, the crappy thing, I think, about the double jeopardy law, because it's like, like sometimes more evidence comes into play that's and stuff like that. But I wish they could maybe just like tweak it a little bit. Exactly. Six. Also on our list at number six is the Toy Box Killer. David Parker Ray is known as the Toy Box Killer because he tortured his victims in a trailer behind his house in New Mexico that he called his Toy Box. We talked about this monster on Morbid in September 2018, so way in the beginning. Mm. He wrote in his journals that he had up to 40 victims, but it could be much more this episode of morbid because like this you is said the one i broke you on it was early in the game of morbid oh my god yeah. i was broken you truly were david parker ray lived near elephant butte lake in new mexico where he kept that 22 foot long white trailer inside it was a torture room there were signs in the trailer that said satan's den and bondage room the room had a gynecological exam table where he tied up his victims, and around that were things like whips, knives, and handcuffs. I remember saying this in the episode, but I just can't imagine walking into a room like that after being kidnapped and just being like, what is going to happen to or me Or even here? worse, waking up in that room. Yep, exactly. Attached to that table. Yep. And just looking around and being like, what? And then I'm, we're going to get to it in a mm -hmm. second. His victims would be in there for sometimes days, just staying in there, and he would record videos of him torturing them. So yep. he's recording you. And at some point, he started playing his victims a voice recording of himself, telling them what he was going to do to them. 
I remember you telling me about that, and I think there's like transcript of there it. There is. Right? There's actually like actual audio of it. And you warned everybody. You were like, "Do not go and listen to that yes. because it will ruin you as an individual." It truly will. It's just one of the worst things I've ever read. He explains horrifically what he's gonna do. He's laughing. He thinks that like it is waking up and hearing that play for you in that room. I. It's unimaginable. It's like horror movie. It stuff. truly is. Thankfully, in 1999, though, one woman was able to break free and escape. She led police to David Parker Ray and his trailer. David Parker Ray died from a heart attack in prison in 2002. He was serving a more than 223-year sentence. And I hate that he got out of there early. But you hope it's one of those ones where like, you feel like elephants trampling oh, you. Oh, I hope it was a horrible one. Now, the crazy thing about this case is no bodies have ever been recovered which is why the number of victims is still completely in question. There was um like rumor that they were buried in a national park, right? Yeah, a national park and then there was also like way out in like the de- kind of like desert area, mm-hmm. you know? They were like there's so many places he could have brought them that we'll just so never sad. find them, which is so sad cuz no justice. Exactly. And it's like he died of a heart attack. He didn't even serve that sentence. It's really frustrating. It sucks. Just thinking back on these again is like getting me right back into that like mode of like, oh man, I know you get like riled up. And it's like these are the worst ones, or yeah. some among the worst ones at least. And For it's sure. Like, oh my goodness. Oh yeah. But the, the next ones are gonna be truly something, guys. I you have number one this week. And I do. Obviously, I know what it is for this one. And let me tell you. Number one. Just get yourself ready for that one. And you know it's bad if David Parker Ray is at number six. Exactly. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Five. All right, let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of the most haunting, morbid episodes. Starting off the second half of our list, the tragic case of Susan Powell. Susan Powell disappeared from her home in West Valley City, Utah in 2009. We talked about the case 10 years later in July 2019 on Morbid. Susan has never been found. The investigation to find her and the family drama that resulted from her disappearance turned ugly real fast. And then, unfortunately, it also turned deadly. This case ruined me. Heartbreaking. It's just so sad. Because it's uh, so sad all the way through and then the ending is just like, I remember like crying over this case. Yeah. By the end of 2008, Josh and Susan Powell's marriage was said to be at rock bottom. A year later, in December 2009, Josh took their two boys camping in the middle of the night. Later that morning after they leave to go camping, the daycare calls because the boys didn't show up and they can't reach Josh or Susan. So the police go to the Powell's house. No one is home, but they go in and they notice two fans blowing on a wet spot on the carpet. 
When Josh and their sons returned, Susan is reported missing and Josh was questioned by police about her disappearance. Josh claimed that Susan didn't go camping because she was tired and stayed home. But over the next two years, there were vigils, searches, investigations, DNA sampling, and major conflict between Josh's family and Susan's. And it was so obvious so quickly. Absolutely. So obvious. I mean, he took his kids camping in the middle of the night, and these were like young boys. Yeah, and it's like, at the very least, he should get in trouble for that. Exactly. Like, you're a bad parent. So throughout much of 2011, Josh Powell and his father, Stephen, tell various stories and possibly lies, aka definitely lies, about Susan, including that she ran off with another man and that she was a very flirtatious and sexual person, which was just not true. And also, even if she was, that literally has nothing to do with the fact that she has gone missing. Exactly. Fellas, so. And she's the mother and uh, the mother of your children and grandchildren. Yeah. So, mm, so like, that's nice. Then in February of 2012, Josh Powell took his own life along with his two sons' lives in a house explosion. That is the worst. When you told that story, my mouth must have been open for like 20 minutes. Because you just didn't see it. Well, I mean, you did see it coming, but, but like not you like never that. see this coming. Yeah. Because it happened during a supervised visit where Josh locked the social worker out of the house. Oh, so infuriating. Now, there's two major red flags in this case. Susan had a safe deposit box where investigators found a handwritten will and testament. In that will, Susan talked about how bad her marriage was and that Josh had taken out a $1 million life insurance policy on her. There was a note that read, quote, if I die, it may not be an accident. And again, Susan has never been found. And how sad that anybody, like the fact that she had to write in her last will and testament how terrible her marriage was. Yeah. And you have kids with this guy. It's like, what a lonely place to be. And you're like preparing for like, if I die, Something it horrible. might not be an accident. Like, I just need to let people know that. The father of your children and you she have to was be worried about. documenting things in her last days. Yeah. Like there's a video that you can see where she's like showing different things and like talking about the fact yeah. that it's not going to be an accident if she dies. Horrible. Horrible so that sad. she lived her last few days before going missing in fear Honestly. of him. Seriously. Four. Landing at number four this week is the West Memphis Three. Just in case anyone is wondering if there's a lot to discuss about this crime, Back in March 2020, we recorded four episodes on Morbid to cover it. At the heart of it, it's the sad murders of three young boys, but they often get overshadowed by the questionable investigation and conviction of the three men who served 18 years for the crime. Let me tell you this case. I could have done an entire podcast series for like 12 episodes about it. Well, and everything going on with it now, it's like we need to do a continuation Oh, it's soon. still happening. I know there is going to be more episodes about this because it's still going. So this case began with the disappearance and murders of three eight-year-old boys in May 1993 in West Memphis, Arkansas. After the bodies were discovered, police quickly zeroed in on three teenagers, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Muskelly Jr., the three of them were considered outcasts. They dressed in black, had long hair, and listened to heavy metal music. Does I not think make them murderers. We, we would all be in similar situations, I'm pretty sure. Yep. Rumors that the murders were part of a satanic ritual began quickly and spread even faster because this was height of satanic panic. And in such like a small town. Exactly. All three teenagers were charged and sentenced. Eccles was sentenced to death. Baldwin and Miskelly got life sentences. And the, you can, there's, um, where I'm going to talk about it in a second, but the documentaries about this, the trial part of that documentary, Paradise Lost, oh is my God, something unreal that will just change you. When you watch that, you will lose a lot of faith in a lot of things, I will say. I will never forget coming to your apartment one day, like either, I, I was probably <laughs> skipping school, to be honest, and you were like, you need like, to sit, sit down. down and watch this. <laughs> yes, I was like, there are three of them, sit down. Because also during the trial, there was people that lied. There were people with like printout oh, yeah. degrees. It Absolutely. was a whole bunch of just- a three ring circle. Yeah. And that judge, whew, he might as well have had a printout degree. Ooh, I hope he slept well at night. He doesn't. So the three, 
Damien, Jesse, and Jason, they maintain their innocence, and they did back then. And in 1996, the documentary Paradise Lost, which I just mentioned, explored whether they actually might be innocent. Mm -hmm. And there were the two sequels in 2000 and 2011. Such a good documentary series. They are outrageous. I've never seen anything like it. It truly is crazy. Now, here are some of the questionable parts of the investigation. The night of the murders, there was an ignored report of a bloody man in a nearby restaurant bathroom. Yup. That's one of my favorites. They were just like, oops. The mother of a victim, Michael Moore, testified under oath that she saw her son shortly after school the day he went missing and gave a timetable and details of his actions. But in early 2018, so not that long ago, her daughter completely contradicted her mother's testimony. Mm-hmm. Terry Hobbs, stepfather of victim Steve Branch, was not interviewed until 14 years later even though a hair was found at the crime scene that was genetically matched to him. Like, hello. And remember, we I know you might be like, genetically matched? Well, he's one of the fathers. Stepfather. Yeah. So it doesn't hold up there. The hacker group Anonymous basically alluded to the fact that they hacked the case files, and there was no doubt that Eccles, Baldwin, and Miskelly were innocent. But the police were too embarrassed to backtrack, which I fully believe is the case here. Too embarrassed to backtrack and actually get real justice for three eight-year-old boys who were brutally, brutally tortured and murdered. Well, Ash, we don't want to hurt their egos. No, I want to send their egos to the moon, Alice. Much more important that they feel like big, tough men on that department. So nuts. Yeah. Now, this is another thing, though. Like you just said that they were tortured. Injuries on the boys' bodies were also used by investigators to say that the boys were tortured and beaten. And they used this to do the whole satanic ritual. Mm-hmm. Clearly, there's markings on here that lead to this and blah, 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 blah. But in fact, most of them were post-mortem and animal-inflicted injuries. Oh, you know, I forgot about yeah. that. So th- that totally took away that whole satanic ritual. This is what this is. This was a straightforward, horrific murder of three eight-year-old boys. Yeah. I mean, they were hogtied. I was going to say, they were All still three tortured. Of them were hog, because they were, and you're right, they were tortured because they were thrown into the water, some of them alive. Yeah. Now, on August 19th, 2011, Eccles, Baldwin, and Miskelly were released from prison after taking a plea deal. And I remember this day so perfectly. So do I. Sitting in that same apartment that I'd sat yep. you down. John and I watched it, and I was so excited. It was like a, I wanted to like celebrate that. And day. here is the biggest thing, and you always say this. Why would the state of Arkansas let three child murderers walk free if they thought that they killed children? Exactly. They wouldn't. That shows you right there that they know they didn't do There's it. no way. But they made them take an Alfred plea where they were able to maintain their innocence, but they still are labeled as convicted felons and convicted murderers. Yeah. But it means that they can maintain their innocence, but they can't sue the state of Arkansas for keeping them in prison for 18 years, where they were brutalized in prison. And not only that, but most recently, claiming that the evidence was all lost in a fire that never happened. Yes, firefighters came forward and they were like, "Uh, no, there was never a fire that got rid of all the evidence in that case. And then Damien's attorney found the evidence and he is currently, right now in 2022, he is currently trying to have, like, force them to test that evidence because they have the ligatures and they think they can get DNA. They have a new technology that can, like, really vacuum out DNA. And right they now they're they saying can do it. they're not going to retest. They're trying to fight the testing of it, which Arkansas. tells you everything you need to know about this yeah. case. They don't want to admit that they made the biggest mistake. Oh, yeah. They just don't want to backtrack. And speculation, rumor, and missed opportunities continue to haunt this case. Three. Number three on our countdown of the most haunting morbid episodes is the murder of Skylar Niece. Back in February 2019, we did this episode of Morbid about a 16-year-old, Skylar, whose fallout with her friends ultimately led to her murder. It's dark enough just with that description, but then you add in what was posted on social media and the chill factor goes way up. 
Skylar snuck out of her house in the middle of the night in Star City, West Virginia on July 6, 2012. She snuck out to meet up with two of her friends, Rachel Schof and Sheila Eddy, but Skylar never came back home. Reportedly, Sheila told Skylar's mom that the three of them drove around getting high before they dropped Skylar back off at the end of the street. Months later, on January 3, 2013, Sheila's story fell apart when Rachel confessed that the two girls had stabbed Skylar to death. She then led authorities to Skylar's remains in a wooded area about 20 miles away. Leading up to the murder, the three of these girls were close, but in the days before she died, it seems as if Skylar had some tension with the other two. Skylar's now deleted Twitter account points out the tension. Sheila's Twitter account back then seemed normal on the surface until the truth came out, and that truth is chilling. It is bone chilling to read these tweets. Like, the fact that a little girl is capable of this. Oh, wild. And just like the the mindset, I can't. Oof. After the murder, Sheila tweeted like nothing had happened. When the remains in the woods were confirmed to be Skylar's on March 13th, 2013, Sheila tweeted, quote, rest easy, Skylar. You'll always be my best friend. Oof. Always in all capital letters. Rachel told investigators that she and Sheila planned Skylar's murder during science class. There's just something so messed up about that statement. It's just like, plan- they two teenage girls planning the murder of their best friend, first of all, and doing it during science class because they are children. And Unreal. that's where they get together. Unreal. And the plan was to count to three and then stab her to death. On March 30th, 2013, Sheila tweeted, we really did go on three. Ooh. Like, to be that evil and callous as a child. But that like, is stone cold. Oof. So both teens were charged with murder as adults, which they deserved. Yes. Sheila pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, and she was sentenced to life in prison. Rachel pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Bye. Yeah, goodbye. I mean, the West Memphis Three, the fact that that is not number one, Tells and that you something. Toy Box is not number one, should really tell you something about number one. I feel like you guys know where we're headed, but you never know. And there's one more before that. Yeah. And number two, my next one is honestly, I will say up there with one of the worst ones I've ever researched. Yeah. I think number two is one of the only times that I've cried like on yeah. air. We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of the most haunting morbid episodes. At number two is The Torture and Murder of Shanda Sharer. No one, no matter what age, should experience what Shanda did at just 12 years old. We talk about this case on Morbid on March 8th, 2021. And while there's a lot of layers to it, it does show how easily influenced young kids can be, especially by someone like Melinda Loveless, who orchestrated the entire thing. On January 10th, 1992, Melinda Loveless recruited three other friends to help lure Shanda from her Indiana home. They told Shanda they were taking her to meet up with her girlfriend. The girlfriend Melinda Loveless believed Shanda stole from her. Shanda gets in the car, not knowing that Melinda is hiding in the back seat. She was hiding under some like coats. It's so scary. Mol- and she was ter- like they were not, they didn't get along at all. They had huge fights up until up at this point. I mean, Shanda was scared of Melinda. Oh yeah. It was so she never would have gotten in this car if Melinda was in there. So Melinda just pops up and surprises her and starts threatening Shanda to basically admit she stole her girlfriend or Melinda said she cut Shanda's throat. God. And then it escalated to the darkest place it possibly could. Truly. The four girls tied Shanda up and tortured her for seven hours, possibly as long as 10 hours. And this is, I mean, the worst stuff you can ever imagine. They beat her, they choked her, they cut her, they sodomized her with objects and then poured gasoline on her, her battered, battered body, her 12-year-old battered body, and then burned her alive on the side of the road. 
Afterwards, witnesses say one of the killers was obsessed with the occult and wanted to summon Shanda's ghost to ask how it felt to die by fire. What? I didn't even know that. And they, I mean, they made stops along the way. They stopped to get food. Oh, yeah. They took her out of the, the trunk. They put her back in the trunk. They would stop and beat her along the way when she would cry out. Because Shanda tried, I mean, she survived this entire time. Oh, yeah. She fought so hard. At times, she was calling out for her mother because she's 12 12 years old. It's, I mean, this case will really, like, test every part of you. Oh, yes. Getting deep into this case will ruin you as a human. It's a horrible one. But one of the women was on the Dr. Phil show and basically said the plan was never to kill Shanda. She said, quote, I didn't know Shanda at all. I didn't go into that evening knowing anything was going to happen, wanting anything to happen. I didn't peer pressure. That's all it was. It spiraled out of control way too fast. It's something that never should have happened. Like, that all goes without saying. Like, how dare you just appear on the Dr. Phil show And just pretend that you have something important to say? Like, blame it on, blame the murder, the torture and murder of a 12-year-old girl on peer pressure. Like, the things that I have to say to that person cannot be said on this show. And I also love that it's like, oh, okay, it was peer pressure. I guess in those 10 hours that you were severely torturing and sodomizing a 12-year-old girl who was crying out for her mother, it just didn't, like, occur to you to maybe be like, ooh, maybe we should stop. Exactly. Maybe we should stop this. What is wrong with you? Or maybe say something like, ooh, this is bad. No, that's not peer pressure. If you can stand along and You're watch evil. that and participate in that, you are evil to the core. That y- There's something in you that is rotten. Mm-hmm. Well, Melinda and another woman was sentenced to 60 years in prison. One was sentenced to 50 years and another sentenced to 20 years. All four were released early from prison after serving only a fraction of their sentences. Something that I will never, ever, ever wrap my mind around. And let me tell you, Shanda Sher's mother... Most amazing human. She literally... She's amazing. She actually sent... Because Melinda Loveless started um, training dogs in prison. That Mm -hmm. was like her job. Like she took on that thing to like train dogs. And she actually... Shanda Sher's mother had a dog sent to her to train in Shanda's name. Yeah. And she said... I want to see if she has the capacity to, like, be kind to something that needs her. And what a way to just, like... And it's like, whoa. To take back the control in a situation yeah. like and that. Yeah, and to, like, for Shanda's memory. And Shanda's memory, exactly. She's an amazing woman just to be able to do that. She and really just, is. She's an amazing woman just to go on and wake to up survive. every day. Like, yeah. I can't imagine. Oh, it's an awful case. One. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of the top 10 most haunting morbid episodes, The Moore's Murders. Yes, number one, absolutely. Yep, I will not argue with us. Oh God, we're going back into this, aren't we? I know. We spread this crime across four parts on Morbid in August of 2020. It follows the awful stories of abduction, torture, sexual abuse, and murders of at least five children at the hands of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley in the 1960s. The murders rightfully made them the two most hated people in Britain at the time. Yeah, still. And I was going to say, and probably still today. For all time. There's like a picture of them on this, and I don't even want to look at them. Ugh. Ian Brady was in his mid-20s, and Myra Hindley was barely into her 20s when the two met in Manchester in 1961. Ian was described as a slender stock clerk who owned a substantial library of Nazi literature and someone who had an obsession with sadistic sexual acts. You know, just a fella. Just your everyday catch. Yeah. Myra Hindley was a typist with dyed blonde hair, and she was reportedly shy, but she ended up infatuated with Ian. I don't necessarily know how. Explain to me why. Please explain, or actually don't. Yeah. I don't want to know how your mind works. So two years later, in July of 1963, they became two of the most horrific people on the planet. That's when they kidnapped 16-year-old Pauline Reed. Her body wouldn't be found until 1987 on Saddleworth Moor, when the couple finally confessed to her murder, 24 years later. Monsters. And she's the one that was going to a dance... And was wearing her mother's necklace. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. I was going to. Yep. That same year, November 1963, they offered 12-year-old John Kilbride a ride home, 
but really took him to the moor. His body was found in October 1965 on Saddleworth Moor, not far from Leslie Ann Downey's body. This one, Leslie Ann, just sticks with me forever. Oh, Leslie Ann will just, like, be a part of me forever. Like, I have, like, nightmares about this case because of this. Leslie Ann Downey was just 10 years old when Ian and Myra kidnapped her from a fairground in December of 1964. Leslie's murder is even more disturbing because investigators found pictures of Leslie and a tape recording, apparently, of her murder. And there is, like, just telling you, because I know a lot of people, like, you know, like to look this up. I also like to look this stuff up when I hear stuff. Just a fair warning. Be very, very careful in those Google images. Yes. Things will pop up that will stay with you forever. And I don't recommend it. And there is a transcript of this this uh, recording. There's no audio recording of it, thank goodness. But the investigators still have that. But they do have a transcript. It was in a book I had read and I accidentally like saw some of it. Yeah. Let me tell you, it's like changed the fabric of my being forever. I believe like seeing it. The, the, it was worse than any nightmare I can ever imagine. And there was a part of this where they said they were playing the little drummer boy on repeat. Odd. In the background of this tape. Because this was around Christmas time. And I literally can't hear the little drummer boy. Nope. Like, I heard it. It was, like, on, like, this Christmas, I remember. I It, like, was on a radio station when we were in the car, and I was like, John, turn it turn off. It I was off. like, get it off. I can't even, It is, like, triggered me. I can't yeah. handle that. Because there's, like, photos of that specific crime yeah. scene. Yeah, I, I just... don't recommend Google imaging this at all. Not no. Leslie Ann Downey. Don't do it. Nothing. And these poor investigators... They were the ones that had to listen to this tape and her mother had to listen to the tape to identify her 10-year-old daughter. A 10-year-old, like, baby. And she was the cutest little thing. Oh, she was. All of these kids were, like, adorable. So prior to Leslie, 12-year-old Keith Bennett was taken by the couple in June of 1964 while on his way to his grandmother's house. And his remains were never found. The monsters quote-unquote, couldn't find his location. No, they just loved it. Exactly. And his mom fought to the very end to find her son. And Myra tortured his mother to the very end. Yeah, she did. The murder of 17-year-old Edward Evans in October of 1965 is what got Ian and Myra caught. Myra's brother-in-law helped Ian lure Edward to Ian's house to rob him for money. But Edward fought back, and the two men blamed the other for killing Edward. The brother-in-law ended up not keeping what had happened secret, thankfully. So the brother-in-law ran home and told his wife, and the two of them called the police. Ian Brady and Myra Henley were finally arrested. The two reportedly showed no capacity for empathy during the trial whatsoever. Oh yeah, none. But because this was a year after Parliament abolished capital punishment in Britain, they each received life in prison. Myra died in prison in 2002, and Ian Brady died in 2017 after a brutal, like, sickness. Oh, yeah. They both had a, just a variety of terrible illnesses, which I think was just the universe's way of really balancing some of this out, because they definitely suffered at the end, which is a-okay. And Myra... I mean, she she tried to stay in contact with Ian, and then she pulled back. Ian tr- like talked all kinds of crap about her. They started turning on each other. It was ridiculous. And then they both are not telling the families where their loved ones were or what happened. It was awful. And at one point, Myra was trying to get sympathy from victims' mothers. Like, are you kidding me? Literally trying to get sympathy and acting like, how dare... She be in prison rotting away. She's a good person. Unreal. And there were some people that supported her. Yeah. Like thought she actually didn't do it, which is why the phrase punch a Myra Hindley supporter in the face came about. Exactly. During our recording. It truly did. <laughs> it's beyond me to think that anyone would support these two. It's crazy to think that like people though can be that like manipulative. Oh yeah. And clearly she was. Absolutely. That's why that whole little like scared act that she played that she was like well i just i didn't know what to do and blah. like okay like, no you were right there with them you're both horrifically evil in every way imaginable yes yeah the moore's murders we had to make number yes. one for so many obvious reasons i mean 
these were like young children. Oh yeah. And just like, I mean, Leslie and Downey's murder, like we were saying, just, it will ruin you as a person. Yeah, it's it, just it was around level. Christmas. It was, yeah. So it just, that's why it's number one. Oh, I it mean, just, it goes without saying. Even thinking about it now, I'm like having to force myself mm-hmm. to like shove it out of my brain. I'm like, oh, okay. I, know, get I need it. to like sage myself. Yeah, I need to watch like a comedy or something. Yeah, looking back at these crimes was tough. That was a lot, but uh, I, it's funny because when I look back at them, I'm like, wow, a lot of these were like many parts. And yeah. it's funny that these are the ones that we picked because they're the ones that we just like couldn't stop. Yeah, we like just you couldn't have leave to anything get out. everything. And honestly, like you need to space them out as not only like a person delivering the mm-hmm. story, but for the people listening. Yeah, because everybody needs a little breather. I remember the Moore's murders. We had people commenting and being like, ooh, like I'm having trouble getting yeah. through this, but I got to get all the way through. I think after the Moore's murders, we actually did something haunted. We just did. So that it wasn't like murdery. Yeah, and we had terrifying. a couple of like spooky episodes just to be like, okay, let's just, let's go to ghosts for a little while. Yeah. But I mean, there's definitely some more that I would say like, you know, even recently that we've done oh, that. Oh, yeah, there's, we like, could do so many installments. Hillside Stranglers was a crazy one when you really get down to it. Mm hmm. I mean, there's so many, but of course, I think we could do like a whole other one of these if Truly. we really wanted to. Yeah. Just Got like a lot of episodes. Morbid so. in review. <laughs> morbid part. Duh. Well, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Crime Countdown on Spotify to get a brand new episode delivered every week. You can find all episodes of Crime Countdown and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, which I hope you do because you're here, you made it through with us, uh, you can find our other podcast, Morbid, which we just talked a lot about. So you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Or you can follow us on Instagram at Morbid Podcast or on Twitter at A Morbid Podcast. And we hope you keep it weird until Monday. Crime Countdown is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It was created by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Anthony Valsic. Fact checking by Cara Mackerlein. Research by Jonathan Ratliff. It's produced by John Cohen, Kristen Acevedo, and Jonathan Ratliff. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro. We're your hosts, Ash Kelly and Elena Urquhart. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. 